da, 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 da. Fresh out the oven, it's Cinema Bums. I'm your friendly neighborhood, Emmett. Um, and I'm the wizard. Wade, but the lizard. Cinema I'm Bums. I'm Dr. Wirt Wanners. I thought that was our uh, Oscar correspondent. Cinema Bums <laughs> is a podcast where we watch through every single movie in popular film franchises, one each week to try and track how the storytelling changes over time. Today, we are continuing our miniseries, Webhead Summer, covering every Spider-Man film. We will fully spoil today's film, The Amazing Spider-Man, but we will not spoil any future entries in the series. Uh, Wade, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. How about you? I am also doing very well. I am right hot off of viewing both of these andrew garfield movies so excited to talk oh, okay about and you know still an emotional wreck to be quite honest <laughs> uh, really hitting home in some pretty special ways so yeah you know, yeah uh yeah as you said today we're talking about the first amazing spider-man mm-hmm. this was released june 29th 2012 by sony pictures Five years after Spider-Man 3, which I feel like at that point, there was a lot of chatter about it being like too soon for another Spider-Man. Interesting. It's kind of funny because now, like between these Garfield movies and Tom Holland, it's going to be two years. Like now we get these much quicker, I feel like. But I did some research. Let me see. It had been eight years between Batman movies. Mm. in terms of an actual reboot between Batman and Robin and Batman Begins. And then it had been seven years between the last Picard Star Trek movie and those being rebooted. So that was sort of the time frame. And then these are in five. And and that was too soon. That was too hot off of the end of the masterpiece that is (laughs) Spider-Man 3. They, They said, no, it's too soon. You can't touch that material (laughs) to be fair i do think spider-man 3 was living large in people's imaginations in the public consciousness for a little while after it came out and let's not forget the 2011 musical i believe uh spider-man turn off the dark dark which uh all jokes aside it was actually responsible for the deaths of i believe multiple people um (laughs) It was bad. It was bad. It was really bad. And beyond that was also pretty much critically panned. There could be a little bit of that. There could be some of that spidey hate was going on. It looks like that started previews in 2010 uh, and then officially opened in 2011 and ran until 2014. <laughs> Until this movie came out, and and, until the second one of these movies came out and supplanted it, as it said, uh, it was the most expensive Broadway production in history and the longest preview period for (laughs) in Broadway history, with 182 preview performances before it opened. Could you imagine spending half a year in previews? (laughs) Truly crazy. Six people were injured. Uh, and that's not counting the people who actually listen to the U2 score for that. So, Yeah, those, those your, your drums are permanently scarred. Okay, let's turn off the dark, though. This came out in 2012. Emmett, did you... What are your memory of both of these movies? Did you see them in theaters? I must have seen it in theaters. Because I certainly never saw it not in theaters, and I seem to have remembered seeing the first one. I definitely saw the second one, and and we can get to it when we talk about that one. But I really yeah. like the second one, and I like this one a lot on the rewatch, too. Oh, interesting. I actually have a pretty strong memory of seeing this, because I think it was July 4th, and it was just my mom and I. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Zane was doing something. And we. Tr- it was one of those things where we had no desire to see this movie, but we just went to the movies to do something with air conditioning. <laughs> and this was playing. And then I like really liked it. And this movie too at the time, this was this was a summer between my junior and senior year of high school. When oh. This came out. My high school girlfriend who I dated on my junior year was a big fan of the Raimi movies, which I hadn't really seen, but then I think that we saw this and it felt I was very into it at the time because of like the high school romance. 
sense. Mm, mm-hmm. And both of us were kind of imprinted on those characters. Now that you mentioned that, I seem to also remember having seen this with my high school girlfriend. <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> rang some bells. That rang some bells for me. I was like, yes, I do remember being on the ferry ride back home from having to go take a ferry to watch movies, which is still what I have to do. Hmm. I remember taking the ferry with you to see X-Men, which was playing at the same time as two, which I guess we'll talk about next week. But I do remember that we went to see that. And then best of future guest Caroline, your sister saw the second movie at the same time. Oh yeah. But yeah, I, I liked this movie too when it came out, although I think that I had only ever seen it that one time. It was directed by Mark Webb. Unbelievable. (laughs) Pause for laughter. (laughs) So good. (laughs) So good. Nominative determinism at its finest. This guy was a music video director for 10 years before he did any narrative stuff. But he did like a lot of like Green Day, My Chemical Romance. Like it was a lot of like music videos that people saw. He was like a big name. And then in 2009, he made his feature film debut, the only film he directed before this, which was 500 Days of Summer. Wow. Have you seen that one, Emmett? I never have. I've always been afraid to. I've felt felt like, you know, you know how it is sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Uh, I really like that movie. You sort of see that in the Peter Gwen stuff here Mm, a little. mm -hmm. You see that it is a director who has done like a relationship movie before. Yeah. And I think in some of the action scenes, maybe not to good effect, you see that he was a music video director <laughs> rather than a film director. I think it's sweet, but whatever. <laughs> true, true. I like some of the stuff. I like the point of view action stuff. Mm-hmm. That's basically like a big budget version of the 70s one. I like that stuff. But some a lot of the action just has so many quick cuts. It looks like those Taken movies. Or like Hunger Games. I guess that was like the style at the time, but it's like every second there's a cut to something else and I don't know what's going on. That's how I felt about the like subway fight at the beginning of this, especially. Mm. Mm-hmm. Here's the deal. This movie and the sequel both have a ton of credited writers. So I've tried to parse out who did what exactly. Uh, and the deal with this is that they were making Spider-Man 4 with Raimi and Alvin Sargent, who wrote two and three, was coming back to write that. Oh, whoa. I think we talked about that a little bit last week. That was uh-huh. going to have Malkovich as the vulture. Oh. And that was going to have the lizard in it. And then in 2010, Raimi is like, no, I can't do it. And then they decide to reboot it. So Alvin Sargent still gets a screenplay credit here. I think that is credit for stuff from his Spider-Man 4 lizard script that makes it into this movie. Mm. That's my guess. It's also his last uh, screenplay before his death in 2019. The main screenplay and the only story credit goes to James Vanderbilt, who is the guy who wrote Zodiac. He also was the co-writer of Scream 2022, the new Scream, and is writing the next one. Interesting. Which I think is a really well-written movie, Scream movie especially. Yeah. So he's like the main guy behind this. Also screenplay credit goes to Steve Cloves, the guy who wrote almost all of the Harry Potter movies. Mm. And he apparently was brought on to do like a dialogue punch up, Mm. which normally doesn't normally don't get credited for that. But I guess maybe when you write all the Harry Potter movies, you have enough weight to get to get that credit. The score for this is by James Horner, who I don't think we've ever covered any of his movies, but he's James Cameron's composer. This is also the last film he scored before his death in 2015. It runs two hours and 16 minutes. It's just three minutes shorter than Spider-Man 3, the previous longest movie in this series. It is definitely a a different sort of pacing in this movie than the Raimi films, I think. Talk about a personal Spider-Man. Talk about a human-level Spider-Man. This is a relationship movie. That lizard guy is there, but this is about this is about Peter and Gwen Stacy. His call and like the resistance to the call, part mm-hmm. of his hero's hero's journey arc. And even a lot of the lizard stuff is about like his relationship with Doctor Connors. Yeah, that's like most of the at least the first half of the movie. And I think they've got like perfect casting. 
in these with both leads. Mm-hmm. I don't. I'm not so sure about the villain in this one, but with Andrew Garfield as being like this very empathetic, like caring Peter who is like like messing up, but not because he doesn't care and isn't like trying and like like everything about him works as a character. I feel like. And it being so much about like the conflict between him and his uncle in the first part of the movie. Like even to when it comes back around, like when he brings his aunt the eggs at the end of this movie, it's like, oh my God, so oh, sad. Yeah. It works. This movie works. Uh, it's definitely, he's like a feeling Spider-Man. Yeah. He's like an emotional teenager, which Tobey Maguire certainly never was. Toby Maguire vaguely annoyed by all of Spider-Man's horrible circumstances. Toby Maguire yeah. kind of pissed about it, but not really anything else. <laughs> yeah, that is a big difference with this one. Like he's torn up by everything in this movie constantly. True. There's a lot more parents angst in this one. Mm. A lot more like family angst too. I guess there's a little bit of that in the first Spider-Man, but that is sort of writ large in this one. Yeah. This film had a budget of $220 million. Jesus Christ. (laughs) (laughs) Which is appalling to me. Uh, And that is one of the reasons why I think that I really like this film. I love 500 Days of Summer. My feeling is that Mark Webb maybe did not have the tightest grip on production. (laughs) This film with one hero and one villain cost $220 million. Insane. Insane. Uh, Maybe if they were still shooting on film and they had shot all presumably five hours of footage on film, I would get it. But yeah, I'm not so sure what happened. But it did make $757 million. It was the seventh highest grossing film of 2012, just beaten by the sixth highest grossing film, The Twilight Saga Breaking Dawn oh, Part 2. Wow. Bella chose Spider-Man as her first victim. <laughs> I was reminded of the Twilight series by mm. both of these movies. Uh, so that's an interesting connection. I was as well particularly of the trope that I think of as starting with Twilight of the Google search montage of someone like (laughs) Googling things and then like a montage of a bunch of search results and frightening images as he's like researching spider bites or the history of the transit system in New York. This movie got generally positive reviews, 66 on Metacritic. And I want to say this was the last Spider-Man film to be reviewed by legendary critic Roger Ebert before oh, his death in 2013. Wow. He gave a positive review and said it was the second best film so far after Spider-Man 2, which I think I might agree with. Hmm. Wait, that brings me to an interesting question for you, my friend. Hmm. If you say you agree with it, does that mean flop or bop for you? It means a bop. I really like this movie. I think that it is much better than it gets credit for. I like a lot of the things it's doing. I have a point to make, which is very hard to make without future spoilers. Mm. So I will just say that the way that the Tom Holland Spider-Man is going to be introduced Mm -hmm. is something that gets sort of universal praise at the time. People cannot believe like the take on Tom Holland Spider-Man and how they introduce him. And I think a lot of the groundwork for that is here. And this movie does not sort of get credit for how much of a new take it is, even though we are sort of once again seeing the spider bite and Uncle Ben getting killed. How so? How so? This movie, first of all, does Peter as a high schooler. Mm -hmm. It avoids giving us the with great power comes great responsibility speech. Mm -hmm. It sort of has like... The most seamless explanation of how a superhero becomes a superhero that I've kind of ever seen in one of these movies. I think it's really interesting about how it shows you that like he gets the powers. Mm-hmm. He's trying to catch Uncle Ben's killer. Mm-hmm. And that's all he's trying to do. And in the process of that, he is like catching a lot of other criminals mm-hmm. and handing them over to the police. But that is the only thing he's trying to do. 
And then it sort of walks you through like why the people of the city believe he is a hero, why the cops don't like him, why he mm-hmm. needs a costume, why he needs to update that costume to look like the Spider-Man costume, mm-hmm. you know, like it all totally makes sense for what he is doing. That sort of gets interrupted by the lizard who is once again, like just his friend who he's trying to save and stop from hurting people. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of like a simultaneous hero villain birth and like it makes so much more sense in the movie than making the leap of someone who is like now i'm really strong so i guess i need to make a costume and go and beat up criminals right (laughs) yeah especially since all of these movies like most superhero movies take place in worlds where there aren't any other superheroes right if spider-man like is looking at Luke Cage and Jessica Jones and a thousand other New York heroes. That makes more sense why when you get superpowers, you would become a superhero. Yeah, yeah. You go join a team. You get, yeah. on, you get on the Avengers or you get on the, the Marvel TV show team or mm-hmm. something else. A comics team. Yeah, but if I was like a 17-year-old who suddenly could climb walls, I wouldn't necessarily be like, I should probably go stop a bunch of bank robberies. Yeah, maybe not the first, <laughs> maybe not the first instinct. So I really like all that stuff. I, there certainly are a few criticisms and there's even more stuff that I really like about it. But let me ask you, Emmett, flop or bop to the amazing Spider-Man? I think it's a bop. I think despite the villain being like largely for me, not particularly exciting, I think that all of the human stuff works super well. And I think it's a very fun, I think he's a much more fun Spider-Man in the middle of it being a much angstier movie. And I think Mm. it plays both of those things like very well. And I think the last 20 minutes of this movie are about the saddest thing in any superhero movie ever. Why does this movie suddenly have the exact same ending as the original Spider-Man? That was very weird for me. Isn't it crazy? Because it is like totally its own movie. And then like it's Gwen instead of Harry. But like the friend's dad dies. He has to make the promise to keep Uh the secret. They're at the funeral in the rain. He has to call it off. He can't do it. Like in the end, it suddenly becomes exactly the same as the first Spider-Man. Yeah, but it pulls it off better. It does it better, and I think the the ends like there's that thing about like the promise you can't keep, and like you know that he's gonna still chase after her. It's like more emo and a mood, and less like an absurd character choice that comes out of nowhere in this movie. <laughs> I mean, what I like about it, I like a that he just tells her he's Spider Man, and I like that he just breaks the promise. Like I like that he has these sort of heavy things weighing on him, but he's also like a teenager and he's like, I really like this girl. I'm just going to tell her I don't care. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I don't care what I told her dead dad, what promise I made on his deathbed. I'm still just going to date her. Yeah. Wouldn't you? Like, (laughs) yeah, of course. This is what I always think. I would tell everyone. Yeah. I mean, not like people on the street, but like everyone close to me would know I was Spider-Man like in a week. Well, because you'd be like, hey, look, if any if anything terrible happens to you, I just want you to know it's my fault. Uh, I am Spider-Man and you're getting hurt because you're my friend. And I hope that makes you feel better about it when like a subway car is being dropped on your head by the Green Goblin or something. These are also maybe my cancer sensibilities, but I just wouldn't want people pissed at me while I was off, like, saving the world. Like, I would not deal with all the Tobey Maguire stuff of, like, his aunt cursing him out for being late to dinner when he was, like, saving innocent people. I would just be like, hey, if (laughs) if I'm not going to do my homework tonight, it's because I was saving 50 people. It's like, give me, just give me a break. Yeah, for real. And I mean, Tobey Maguire, what is he doing? How is Spider-Man not set up like a little booth in Times Square, signing autographs and making money that way? Why is he still running around delivering pizza? What is that? That makes no sense. No. Okay. So if I had, if I was in Peter Parker's position Uh and the first, like I get Spider-Man powers. Yeah. Okay. First, you're going to crawl up, 
to Gwen Stacy's window and have, you know, lots of un- unobserved late night conversations with her without having to go through the, like where her parents can see you. That's great. Second yeah. thing, I'm going to go out, use that to help make a little bit of money for Aunt May, help pay these bills. You know, his uncle's dead. Like, <laughs> you know, she's having to work double time, double overtime as a waitress. And she's in her 60s. That's not that's not anything pleasant that she should have you having to do. He needs to go mm. use those spidey skills. You know how many trays he could carry at a restaurant? <laughs> Seriously, that's what that's what he should be doing. Instead, he's out here trying to fight crime. Like he's some kind of superhero. What is this? <laughs> With great power comes great responsibility. And your first responsibility is to go out and make a little bit of cash to bring back to Aunt May. <laughs> That's what his uncle would have told him if he was around. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that is honestly probably true. You know, just if you're super strong, go and do. I think this is actually what they do in Man of Steel. Uh-huh. Where Superman spends 10 years, like, working on very dangerous construction sites because he's, like, a guy who is super strong. So he's like, let me just make a lot of money doing hard jobs that no one else wants to do. Yeah, let me just lift this steel beam 60 stories (laughs) over and over again all day. Uh, no, Spider-Man could totally, he could be like the safety guy on a on a work site so that if anybody fell off a building, he's there, he's catching them, he's making webs and stuff. He could get paid a lot of money to do that, you know, and he'd be helping people. True. That's just, that's just my, th- that's just my thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we've gotten to the point of this series where our main thoughts are. <laughs> about what we would do with these powers <laughs> not about the material at hand uh another you mentioned anime another big difference for me between spider-man 2002 the mm-hmm. first movie mm-hmm. is that i really like uncle ben here oh. and i really care about all of the uncle ben anime stuff absolutely which totally drags for me in the 2002 one but i think that uh martin sheen's performance as uncle ben is really good I love the scene where he comes into Peter's room. Peter's like, you've been a pretty good dad, Uncle Ben. I just like buy all of their relationship in a way that I don't totally get mm. in the other ones. I really like him too. I think him, the, that scene where he's on the porch and he calls him right as he's oh, walking yeah. up and he says, don't, uh-huh. don't answer it, but I'm glad to know it works. Oh yeah. That, I mean, that's just such a good, that's so good. Uh, and Sally Field, too, is incredible in these. Yes. I don't know. I think I read that she did not love playing the character. Or mm. she said something like, I think she said something to the effect of, I tried to do something with it, but you can't, you can't fit 10 pounds of crap in a five pound of crap back. <laughs> That's funny. But despite her experience, I think she's great as Ant-Man. I think yeah, I I do think she's underwritten, but I do, I, you're right. She she does deliver for real. Yeah, it's so good. I mean, half of Aunt May's job in these movies is to stand by Peter's side at a funeral and look sad, and she does that in, <laughs> yeah. in both of these movies very well. <laughs> it's to do that, and it's like to be home late with some uneaten meatloaf and be like, "Where were you? Where the were meatloaf you? is cold." I think Uncle Ben's death is unnecessarily muddy just like specifically the moment of his death Mm. i feel like it's even more contrived than it was last time where like uncle ben is just on the street walking the -hmm. robber is like running towards him the robber trips and falls and a gun falls out of his jacket which he didn't use the gun in the actual robbery so that's interesting but like the gun slides on the sidewalk and it's like halfway between the robber and Uncle Ben, who is Martin Sheen in his sixties, and for some reason, then they both dive to grab the gun, and the robber just gets it first and shoots him. Like, what was Uncle Ben doing? Why doesn't he just like stand there or like run away? Why are you? I think that's to the, the point. Gun? I think that's the point. Okay. Is that Uncle Ben was the kind of guy who would like you see Peter refuse to help the guy and then you see uncle ben who's this old dude he sees mm-hmm. the the co- or he sees this uh this robber like run and push some like push some woman out of the way and he's like nah it's not gonna stand i'm gonna stop this guy 
and then he gets killed over it. I think that's what it is. I think it's a very powerful moment. I do think it is a little, still a little contrived, but I do, th- I see what they're going for. Okay. I mean, I still think it is a dumb move on Uncle Ben's part, but I take your point on the symbolic reading, the character difference there. Yeah. It's showing and not telling the like responsibility, power sort of thing, and like that difference, which I think gets so overplayed in the Raimi movies. Yeah. Uh, and True. then this is like a little bit simpler and you just like kind of get to see it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, let's see. Where are we? Where are we? Is there behind the scenes drama for this film that we should discuss? I think we've talked about most of it. The only thing that I want to mention, mm-hmm. and I'm going to mention this and just put it in the back of your mind, because this is a thread that's going to continue through many movies later in this series. But this is the Donald Glover thread. When it was announced in 2010 that they were doing a new Spider-Man movie, Donald Glover, obviously a uh, musician, actor. He was on Community at the time. We, we know him as Lando, as, as Simba and the Lion King, all kinds of stuff. In Atlanta, which is great. If you're listening to this and you're watching Atlanta season three, write us, cinemabumspod at gmail.com, because I want to talk to someone about Atlanta season three. No one else is watching. But it's great. All of that to say, there was this internet fan campaign about people who said that Donald Glover should be the next Peter Parker. Mm. I don't really know what caused it. I don't think it wasn't from him at all, but just like his fans online, did this big viral campaign about Donald for Spider-Man. And obviously he didn't get it. Andrew Garfield did, but there is a poster of Donald Glover hanging on Peter Parker's wall in this movie, which is a little reference to him. And the comic book writer, Brian Michael Bendis saw all of this in 2010 and it was actually his inspiration to create the character of Miles Morales, who is a black Latino Spider-Man the year after in 2011. Whoa, that's super cool. Who then eventually becomes Into the Spider-Verse. Yes, who's going to be the lead character in Into the Spider-Verse. That's so cool. Yes, all of that is going to come into tie later, including it Into the Spider-Verse. But that started here both the thread of Donald Glover and Spider-Man being intertwined and the idea of Miles Morales all came from the casting of this movie. Uh, Well, you mentioned that it didn't totally work for you earlier, but I do want to ask the villain report about what you think of Dr. Kirk Connors as the lizard here, a character who's threaded in all of the last three movies and never gets paid off. And they sort of give him the first movie treatment in this series. Yeah, it's a little odd. I just was unclear what... All right, what is his plan? He's developing this thing to create he's a new arm. He's watched X-Men 2000. Right. That is he's his watched, plan. He's, he's watched... I know. It is very similar to X-Men 2000. He's going to, like, lizardify everybody in the city. I get that at the end, and that, like... We can talk about that being kind of dumb, but I just mean, like, I don't get how he goes from... I want to regrow this arm. I'm just a normal Mm. doctor person to like, oh, he injects it and it messes him up. He turns into a lizard. But then at what point does he say like, oh, therefore I must be evil and turn all the other people into lizards too. Like, I don't, it doesn't track very well for me. And it just seems like a little overdone in a way that when we talk about this next week, I think the second one handles a lot better on the, like the villain the motivation of the villain sort of. Yeah, it is a big leap. Well, first of all, I want to say my feeling is like people who are missing limbs or people who have like big noticeable public disabilities. Mm -hmm. My feeling is that probably they don't spend their entire life being like, wow, I'm really sad that I'm missing an arm. I could be wrong about that, but there are so many scenes in this movie of like, uh, Dr. Kurt Connors like walking past a mirror and then like looking sadly at his arm. I'm like, he probably just would be living a normal life. Like he's one of the top scientists in the world. I don't think he's spending every moment being yeah. like, I'm incomplete without my arm. So that's my first qualm. But then there's this whole weird thing with the guy from Jurassic World who is again playing the exact same part here, <laughs> which is really interesting. The exact same like corporate Hmm. leader going into the bad scientists forcing them to do things that they don't want to do right so he's like we need to do human trials 
Okay, let me back up. Let me back up and try to make sense of this. This is kind of the continuity corner of this. Yeah. Because what we learn is, at Oscorp, Richard Parker, Peter's dad, and Kurt Connors were partners, right? Mm-hmm. And their big thing was this, like, thought that you could take animal DNA and use it to help fix human diseases or human issues. Yes. And they were, like, laughed laughed at at the scientific community. And they mm. basically had, like, most of the work done, but they couldn't quite figure out the rest. And then one night someone throws a brick through their window and the parents leave in the middle of the night and take all the work with them. And nobody knows what happens. Yes. That's what we hear. And then there is some sort of suggestion, right, that Connors maybe was involved in... In them disappearing? The plane crash or something? Maybe. Maybe. That Connors could have had something to do with it or knows something about it. But it's not very clear. It's not very clear. And then at the end, he is visited by a character named The Gentleman. This, like, original Sony creation for this series. He's just visited by a mysterious person in prison who's like, did you tell the boy the truth about his father? Oh, wow. And I don't know. That's obviously setting up for sequel stuff. So I don't know. Right. But the Jurassic World guy is like, we got to start human trials. Even though it's nighttime, I'm going to drive to a veterans hospital and steal some veterans and inject them with this stuff. It's all very weird. But then Connors is like, okay, well, I have to do it myself so that he doesn't hurt those people. And then he does it, and then he turns into a big lizard, and then he tries to catch the guy, and then we never hear from the guy again. It's one of a couple weird plot lines in this movie that totally stop. Oh, you're right. We don't ever hear from that guy again, do we? Right? <laughs> no. What happened to him? What was going on with him? He was on the bridge to the veterans hospital, and then nothing. Damn. My other thing, not to work at cross purposes, but my other big thing about this movie is why does Uncle Ben's real killer like never come into the picture? Like, why do we spend like 25 minutes on that plot line just for it to stop and never come back again? Damn. So, yeah, so we never we never see that guy again ever, do we? No, there's all this stuff about like the guy with the star on his wrist and and there's all this oh, build up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And nothing. And then never. Like, it needs to be that in the final battle, like, someone finally catches him. And Spider-Man, like, has to choose between saving the city and and stopping that guy or something. Yeah. You know, like, you just need it to come around in some way. Anyway, after he's the lizard, there's this really awkward scene where he has, like, an underground layer. And he's like, my purpose in life is to stop anyone from being a social outcast. And I will turn everyone into lizards so there will be no social outcasts. Yeah, okay. And then he makes, like, a gun that turns people into lizards. And then he's going to, like, blow a big thing over the city that will turn everyone in the city into a lizard. But unsurprisingly, if it turns them into lizards, it will also kill them. So Spider-Man has to figure out how to spray an antidote over the city, right, instead? Which is done with the help of Gwen Stacy and her cop dad, who is the other villain of this movie and of the next one. First of all, this movie, which I like, is diving back into the 70s thing of, like, the fraught relationship between the police and Mm Spider-Man. Where, like, the police, some of the police hate Spider-Man and he has to, like, beat them up to, like, allow him to save the day at the end. I like that. But let's talk about it because, truthfully, I just, like, hated Captain Stacy. Which Mm -hmm. I think you are supposed to, but I was just like, this dude is awful. Yeah, he's the worst, right? He has this whole, like, dinner conversation where he's like, I don't protect people. I stand for law and order. There, Yeah, and he's like, Spider-Man is doing a better, more humane job than the NYPD, and he's just one person in a mask, and that makes it illegitimate. I like, like you were saying, the relationship stuff. Like, I like that, you know, the two villains are, like, his mentor slash his dad's best friend and his girlfriend's dad. Like, those are just strong relationships to put on. Right, it's like thematically very, very satisfying. Mm-hmm. And I like, I really like the battle at the end. I think it's very fun. Okay, so basically all this stuff is happening with Gwen and Peter. Mm-hmm. She's finally noticing him. They're falling in love. And then her dad on his deathbed says, Promise me you'll never be with her, Peter. 
Peter says, I promise. And then basically immediately breaks the promise, but not before like having a very heartfelt breakup scene (laughs) after a very heartfelt funeral scene. The end of this movie is super sad. He also delivers some eggs and I've never thought eggs would make me cry in a movie before, but (laughs) they do in that scene. How do you feel about Spider-Man, Andrew Garfield as Peter Parker, basically playing him as past and future guest Warren Weber? It really works for me. Uh, All of the stuff where it's not him in the spider suit is just like him acting a John Patrick Shanley scene study for an acting class. (laughs) And it's either with like Emma Stone, who is the cutest person in the class, or with Sally Field, who is the teacher and incredibly skilled. So it's just like always works, you know? (laughs) Him just like spilling out his entire life to people all the time is wonderful. It really does remind me of Warren. Yeah, it reminded me a lot of Warren. But I do really like the performance. And I think his Spider-Man is great and is like what we have been waiting for. What is really missing in those Toby movies is like the jokey Spider-Man. Yes. Who has that like fresh energy as opposed to other superheroes. Like that's what makes Spider-Man so fun. And I feel like it's finally captured here. Yeah. And both the heart and the fun and like the jokiness is there for. Yeah. Now, other than Spider-Man, who would you say is your MVP OTP? Okay, well, I guess if it's just other than Spider-Man, then I would, of course, have to give it to Emma Stone Mm. as Gwen Stacy. Mm -hmm. Um, This is a few years after the House Bunny, which we talked about her performance before in. I think that their chemistry is so good. It is, like, close to 10 Things I Hate About You chemistry. And obviously, they were, I believe, in real life dating Mm. uh, after a meeting on this production throughout both of these movies. Wow. First of all, I love that it is Gwen Stacy. Like, this is the thing from the comic books that we talked about at the very beginning, which is like in the Spider-Man comics, the thing always was he dates Gwen Stacy, who is like very smart and bookish. She is the daughter of the police chief. uh, And that's like his high school girlfriend. And then she gets killed by the Green Goblin. And later in college, Aunt May introduces him to their neighbor, Mary Jane, Mm. who is like, uh, like sexy socialite outgoing. And he sort of carries like both the relationships with him. So that's something I've always loved about Spider-Man. I love that we are like finally starting with Gwen. I think it was like an abomination in Spider-Man 3 that they put Gwen in as like college student temptress when he's trying to like settle down with Mary Jane. All of that stuff is so weird. It's super strange. Dig on this. Yeah. I love that she like looks like the 60s comics too, very much in her... Mm-hmm. Um, costumes they don't exactly costume anyone else that way but like I think it works because yeah. you like her so much and I like her character arc of having sort of dealt with this before from her dad now mm. she like knows how to deal with it with Peter I think all that stuff is very compelling and I love that she gets involved too in the school fight and in the police fight at the end by the way i i also want to say i think my favorite stanley cameo in this in the school fight where he's got the headphones and he doesn't know that they're uh battling behind him oh uh, that's funny yeah but i would give it to emma stone is there anything else you want to say about her just that i mean this was like my the height of my love for emma stone was when this movie mm-hmm. came out like picture it i'm like 16 or 17 when this movie came out it's like yes emma stone i couldn't couldn't possibly imagine a time when i was more more into that but uh <laughs> lovely lovely performance here truly is like those chemistry between them makes it crackle makes you care about it in a way that i feel like the sam raimi movies are working so hard for and this it just happens without really them having to do much at all who's your mvp my mvp i think it's gonna have to be old martin sheen as uncle ben yeah i think it's a pretty great performance it's played out to an unbelievable degree now 
but I love the final voicemail at the end of this movie. I think it's, uh-huh. I think it works in this movie in a way that like some of the Tony Stark ones don't, especially because Tony Stark ends three different movies with a voiceover. Like I'm probably dead now. <laughs> if you get this, don't feel too sorry. Feel pretty bad, but not too bad. But like this one's actually for real and heartfelt and is super sad. And it isn't like left for him to like find in case Uncle Ben dies. It just happens to be the last thing that Uncle Ben sent him, which I think makes it more realistic and more meaningful. Yeah. That it's just like how he was on the everyday. I love that they never do great power, great responsibility. Like you get it. I think this movie, what I like about this movie is that it is still introducing you to things, but it knows that you know who these things are. Yeah. You know, like Oscorp is just there. There's mm-hmm. this whole thing where people keep saying Norman Osborn is dying and they never mm-hmm. introduce who Norman Osborn is. You just like see the Daily Bugle lying around, you know, like they mm-hmm. you're just supposed to know what all of this stuff is and they aren't like rehashing all of it. Yeah. Uh, I want to shout out two other performances. One was just like a funny little thing is that Gwen's little brother who like makes some funny joke at the dinner table or something mm-hmm. is in licorice pizza as like a 20 year old as a pretty big part of it. Whoa. And it was very funny to see him as like a little kid in this. That's funny. <laughs> he looks very similar. I also just want to shout out Chris Zilka, the guy who plays Flash Thompson in this. Uh-huh. I feel like there's like quietly something very compelling about him and Peter's interactions. And mm-hmm. I really like their little arc throughout the movie. Yeah. It's like very understated and not a big part of it, but I like his performance and I like the story of their relationship. Well, I'm excited to get on to this quiz. So do you have any other final thoughts before we go? Is that, or is that about covers? Final thoughts. I just want to say in fairness, because we gave Tobey Maguire a lot of crap for how old he is. Uh-huh. I do just want to uh, state for the record that Tobey Maguire was 26 when they shot Spider-Man 2002. Uh-huh. And Andrew Garfield is 27 in this movie. I can't imagine people being either of those ages. How horrible. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, yeah, I think he looks a lot younger than Toby looks in those movies, but he's still 27 playing a 17 year old for all of this movie. Well, you know what they say? I, the, they just, you, the, it just, the years just keep getting younger. So pretty soon, like, I could, I could play Peter Parker. I, by the time this podcast comes out, I'm going to be 27. So just think about that, podcast listeners. It's a voice from the past, a 26-year-old Emmett, a younger, sweeter, smoother Emmett uh, than whatever is about to come down the road. Oh, boy. It's sometimes hard to compare the Raimi movies because the thing that Sam Raimi is so good at mm-hmm. is something that like almost no other directors are good at at all. Okay. Like Sam Raimi's visual sensibilities and his approach to the filmmaking and the camera, Mm -hmm. like that stuff is so thrilling and almost no other directors are going to bring that, which makes it hard to like compare the strengths of those to other movies, True, especially because there are some scenes in this movie, uh, as Laura was saying, where you really wish Sam Raimi had directed it. Like when Mm. Gwen is hiding from the lizard Uh, or when all the cops are turning into lizards and there's like that body horror All of that stuff feels like it's missing his touch. But I do think that this movie has like a more almost like lackadaisical high school approach. And I think that the relationship stuff is really like where Mark Webb's strength is from 500 Days of Summer Mm -hmm. in directing the actors and like building up that stuff. And because of that, these movies feel much more like realistic and lived in to me mm-hmm. than those Raimi movies. I really love all that stuff. And I love Garfield and Stone's performance. So I would say if you just sort of wrote this one off at the time, like I do think that this one in particular is really worth a rewatch. A thumbs up for me. So that's all. Emmett, any final thoughts? The last thing I want to say about it is it's just, I think it's a vibe-year Spider-Man. I think it's... It's a throw it on kind of Spider-Man. It's like, oh, do you want to watch this movie? Sure, why not? And it's got a good soundtrack. It is, like you said, like a high school romance movie as well as a superhero movie. And I think it blends that 
romance a lot better than most of these do mm-hmm. in a way that I find like fun and compelling. Even when it is overwrought, you just have two actors who are selling it so much and you're like, yeah, that is that is what it you know. Yeah. All right. So moving on, our quiz for this for this week is about franchise reboots. So okay. it's gonna be a bums the word about franchise reboots on different movies. So we're gonna start with the um top five highest grossing franchise reboots. Okay, interesting. And then I've got a couple more to fill it out to, I think about 10 um, of other popular franchise reboots. Okay, at number one, it is The Amazing Spider-Man, this movie that we're talking about. So all these other ones are the next five, okay? Okay. So the first one is released in June 13th, 2008. It is a Marvel-related title. Uh, Is it The Incredible Hulk? That is correct. Okay. The next movie released November 17th, 2006. It is the reboot introducing a new actor playing a much beloved character in a long running action series. Is this Casino Royale? That is correct. That's a good one. Uh, It is. And it is such a good movie. Yeah. The next movie is released May 8th, 2009. It is a reboot of a science fiction series. Hmm. Okay. All right. You know it was directed by JJ. Oh, okay. This is Star Trek? That's correct. Okay. The next movie, a classic from June 28th, 2006, a Warner Brothers DC joint directed... By whom, one might wonder? (laughs) Wait, is this uh, Man of Steel? Oh, no, no, sorry. Uh, Superman Returns? It is indeed Superman Returns. You know know who that's directed by. Is it Zack Snyder? No, it's worse. It's even worse. Wait, is it Brian Singer? It is. Good God, man. That's what he left uh, X-Men 3 to direct. And finally... The movie that started it all, that showed everyone a different path forward for superhero films, truly a groundbreaking marvel, a heartbreaking work of staggering genius, directed by friend of the pod. We've been trying to get him on for for weeks now, <laughs> old Chris Nolan. Yeah, yes. Uh, this is, of course, Batman Begins. <laughs> Batman Another Begins is correct. It is. It really is. It really is a great movie. All jokes aside, okay, this next film, uh, it's a 2014. uh, This is telling me that it is like an action adventure. I thought it was horror, but um, apparently (laughs) it's created by, uh, it was created by an American comic book author. Uh, These are characters from some comic books, um, later an animated TV series, and based on a line of toys as well. Wait, is it is it Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? It is indeed Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Oh, uh, okay. Next film is a 2019 slasher film uh, directed by Lars Klevberg. And it is the uh, remake of an earlier film um, of the same name uh, starring an evil doll that kills people. Um, oh, is this a child's play? It is a child's play. Next up, we have a movie near and dear to both of our hearts. It's a 2017 remake of a remake of a remake of a remake. I believe the original is from the greatest year in film in 1933, but don't quote me on that one. It stars a giant gorilla uh, as well as also some cool people who we like. Oh, uh, King Kong. Yes, uh, but that is not not the name. Oh, okay. Is this Kong Skull Island? Yes, that's correct. And finally, from legendary director, um, what 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 was his name? This movie was directed by Neil Marshall. Never heard of him. Starring the legendary David Harbor. 
of Stranger oh, Things fame. Is this, uh, this is the immediately forgotten Hellboy reboot. It is the immediately forgotten Hellboy reboot. That is correct, Wade. You have won the game answering correctly all out of all times that I asked you things. Uh, I hope you're happy. I certainly am. I'm here to plug more emo superhero movies. I feel like this, this one, and Batman, the most recent one with Robert Pattinson, are up there. Other emo superhero movies. Send us your recommendations at <laughs> dot com. Spot at gmail.com. I, I want to say about this and the Batman uh-huh. and several of those that you just mentioned that I think that I actually really like reboots. And I think that I'm more excited to roll the dice on a reboot than on a straight up remake or on a legacy sequel. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like there's just more potential for like a really new, strong take on the material. For sure. Obviously, sometimes like Casino Royale, Batman Begins, the Batman, it works out. We haven't seen Multiverse of Madness, but as you said, like that Patrick Stewart is playing Professor X in the trailer. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't really want to see the X-Men from the Fox universe brought into yeah. the MCU and that's how they become the X-Men. Like I want to see a new group of X-Men and yeah. maybe it'll be good. And maybe yeah. it won't. Absolutely. So in general, I feel like I'm pro reboot and I think this is a, a case of it working out with this one. For sure. In a mere eight weeks, friends, we will be discussing Jordan Peele's Nope. Uh, until then you're just gonna have to stay satisfied with the amazing spider-man 2 which is also a pretty kick-ass movie uh we're gonna be talking about that next week dear listener until then stay frosted cinema bums is a production of dkg podcasts it is created and produced by wade lawrence holloman and me emmett temple wade also edits and mixes the podcast Our theme music is by Zane Holloman, who you can find on Bandcamp, and our show art is by Autumn Beckner. Our social media is managed by Laura Bennett. If you like what you hear, please tell all your friends and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, the two best ways to spread the word about our work. You can also follow us on Instagram at cinemabums or email us at cinemabumspod at gmail.com. Don't flake on us. We'll be back next week.